you turn your Bibles with me this morning to Daniel chapter 5, we continue on in our character study of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. Our text will be from the entire chapter once again, it is one thought, one event, Daniel chapter 5. We had met Daniel in chapter 1 when he was a mere teenager and by the time we had come to chapter 4, it had been 30 years later, he was 50 years old approximately and now we come to Daniel chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar has passed away and he is now roughly 80 years old. Daniel chapter 5. The text of scripture reads as such. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Verse 5. Suddenly... The fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, quote, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanations of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems was found, were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. 
Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you the Daniel who is one of the exiles of Judah whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you, that illumination and sight and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you and you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Because of this grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whoever he spared, alive, and whomever he wished to be elevated, and whomever he wished to be humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he became, behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, that they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, upharsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given 
over to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple, put a necklace of gold around his neck, and ensued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Father in heaven, once again we come before your word, your word which is eternal. As your word is declared, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So we desire, O Father, to humbly come and ask once again that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might see great and wonderful things from thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. There was an article entitled, The Art of Being a Big Shot. It was written by a very prominent Christian businessman named Howard Butt. Among many other insights, he said these words, quote, It is my pride that makes me independent of God. It is appealing to me to feel that I am the master of my fate, that I run my own life, call my own shots, go it alone. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. I can't go it alone. I have to get help from other people, and I can't ultimately rely on myself. I'm dependent on God for my next breath. It is dishonest of me to pretend that I'm anything but a man, small, weak, and limited. So living independent of God is self-delusion. It is not just a matter of pride being an unfortunate little trait and humility being an attractive little virtue. It's my inner psychological integrity that's at stake. When I am conceited, I am lying to myself about what I am. I am pretending to be God and not man. My pride is the idolatrous worship of myself, and that is the national religion of hell." Unquote. In the last chapter, in chapter 4, we saw the pride of Nebuchadnezzar, who proudly looked upon all that he had built over many years, over 30 years, and credited it himself. And for that, the judgment of God came upon him. Seven years until he acknowledged that God was the one who was sovereign over all of creation, that God places people into positions of authority and that God takes away that authority. It is God who does so. Until he acknowledged that, he was deposed from his power and now we see a successor to King Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, whose pride will bring about his own death, as well as the downfall of the Babylonian kingdom. Why? Because God's judgment will come upon those who are proud and unrepentant. 
God's judgment will come upon those who are proud and unrepentant. Now, I want to give you a background to this text that we look today before we begin so that you'll have an understanding of where we've been and where we are now. As I mentioned to you back in chapter 3, when we met Shadrach, Shmang, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, they were young men. In chapter 4, when we meet King Nebuchadnezzar in that incident, there was a period of some 30 years. The last chapter, Daniel would have been about 50 years old, and in this chapter, it's been another 30 years since that time when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. Between chapter 4 and chapter 5, King Nebuchadnezzar, of whom there was no, no more ink spilled of a pagan king than Nebuchadnezzar is, there was another period of about 30 years in which he has now died. He died around at 563 B.C., and now Daniel is an aged man. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's son succeeded him, and Nebuchadnezzar's son released King Jehoiakim from prison and gave him a place of honor, and we find that in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 27. King Nebuchadnezzar's son, and his Akkadian name was Amel Marduk, was only on the throne for some two years. So Nebuchadnezzar's son took the throne for two years until he was assassinated by his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law only lasted there for four years until he died and was succeeded by his son. His son only lasted nine months until he was murdered, and that placed a man named Nabonidus, Nabonidus, meaning Nebo is exalted on the throne. Nebo is one of the patron gods, pagan gods of the Babylonians. Nabonidus is on the throne. Now, this is what is historically found in archaeology. And the Bible many years ago was criticized because there was no evidence of a man named Belshazzar, whom we meet here, who is called the son of Nebuchadnezzar. How is that reconciled? Other sources state that, of course, you know, as we mentioned, Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. And again, some commentators many years ago would say that Belshazzar, whom we find here, was a fictional character that the author simply made up. But since the time of those critics, there have been plenty of archaeological evidences that have been discovered, some 37 archival texts ranging from the 1st to the 14th century, stating the year of Nabonidus, there was a son of Nabonidus called Belshazzar, who was his son. The reason why Belshazzar was called king of Babylon is because Nabonidus, for religious reasons, because he was very devout to one of the pagan gods, the pagan god called Sin, was ruling south of Babylon. And so the crown prince... Belshazzar was ruling in Babylon, and they were co-regents. In other words, there was a co-rulership of kings, and that's why they was, he, he here was called the king of Babylon. And the Jews would have been very accustomed to this, to have co-regents who ruled together a kingdom. Nabonidus, whom we find in history, and then we found evidences of his son, Belshazzar, whom here is called the king. But it says here, that Nebuchadnezzar was the father, here in the text, of Belshazzar a half a dozen times. And Belshazzar is called his son. 
So how do we get all of these permutations where so-and-so only lasted a few months or nine, nine months or a couple of years before they were assassinated? How is Belshazzar then his son? Well, the answer is that when you read the word son in the Bible, it might mean biological son. It might mean grandson. It might mean descendant, or it might mean simply a successor. That is how the word son is used. Take, for example, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus is called the son of whom? Joseph? No. He's called the son of David. Joseph was his earthly father, but he was in the lineage of David. And so too in Matthew 21 verse 9, when Jesus in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the people are throwing their coats out onto the road, waving palm branches, and they are singing, Hosanna, the son of David. Jesus wasn't the biological son of David. He was in the line of David. And so, too, when we look at the word son here in this text, Belshazzar is not the direct son of Nebuchadnezzar. He is a successor, but he is called a son. He is within the, the, the reigning lineage of Nebuchadnezzar. So now we come to Daniel chapter 5. And the message of this particular chapter is very, very much similar to chapter 4. The condemnation of the proud. The condemnation of the proud. But the main difference between the two chapters is that the rulership and the glory was taken away from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar turned and gave glory to God whereas Belshazzar does not. Nebuchadnezzar is restored in his kingdom. Belshazzar dies, and the entire kingdom of Babylon collapses, and the Medes and the Persians take over. So let's look at this pride, the pride of Belshazzar, as we begin in verses 1 through 4. He held a great feast, it says, this king, this king of Babylon, who is a co-regent with Nabonidus, he held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. He was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. And what he does is he tastes the wine and he gave orders, verse 2, to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem. So you realize here what's happening what is happening is that he gives these orders. You recall that Nebuchadnezzar had defeated Jerusalem, had taken out some of the treasures, had placed them in his own temple, not only as a trophy of his victory, but in a sense he is saying that my God is more powerful than the God of the Jews. Little did they know that God used Babylon, as the book of Habakkuk would say, God used Babylon to bring judgment upon sinful, his own sinful people, the Jews. He holds this feast. He holds this tremendous, tremendous feast. And what does he do? In his arrogance and the pride that he has, he mocks God. He mocks God. They brought the gold vessels out, verse 3. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and wood. Tremper Longman writes, but Belshazzar goes even further in his sacrilege. He's not only committing blasphemy, he combines it with idolatry. He uses God's holy goblets to toast the lifeless idols of his own religion. He spits 
in God's eye, as it were. And then he goes over to a statue that he himself has created, verse 4, and expects that lifeless hunk to protect him from what is to come, unquote. The lesson is simple. Never mock God by irreverent behavior. Never mock God in irreverent behavior in the worship of the Lord. People fail to take seriously the things of God so often. I've watched people, even during communion time, they'll giggle and laugh as if the Son of God who died for their sins was a joke. It is sad. It's very sad. Churches have put on wrestling matches in the sanctuary. They feature games and contests in order to win a crowd, in order to appeal to those who come. Why? Because they want to see some sort of spectacle or entertainment. They turn to worship, and it is no longer worship. It is something other. It is a mockery. For God has called us to, to have a reverent attitude towards him. Those things may appeal to our flesh, but they certainly don't appeal to God. And this is what Belshazzar does. He mocks God. He mocks God by taking what was used in the holy temple for holy purposes. And he mocks God, placing them in a position of idolatrous worship. See, our pride is not simply bragging or highlighting ourselves. Our pride shows itself when other things happen as well. We, we don't think and we're not even bothered when things that are irreverent in the worship of our God, attitudes that we can have. Our pride shows itself as we take for granted that which God has given to us and we credit many times not only ourselves but Many times our own pride manifests itself in all sorts of sins. Pride shows itself when others succeed and we're jealous, or our pride shows itself in an attitude that we think we're entitled. Our pride itself shows itself when we don't accept God's sovereignty, just as in Nebuchadnezzar's case. When God brings about good things, we pat ourselves on the back, and when trials come, we blame others. But all things that are good and all things that are trials are all by the hand of our sovereign God as well. God hates our pride. And in drunken revelry, Belshazzar's pride brings about the judgment of God. That is what we see here in verse 5. There's the handwriting that comes on the wall. These fingers of a human, verse 5, appear, writes on the plaster wall, and by the way, they've uncovered in archaeology the large banquet room in Babylon by which they think that this particular incident had come about, and yes, they do use plaster, near the lampstand in the royal palace. And the king watched as it wrote, and his face turned Pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. It was a horrifying experience for the king. The king began to shake and weaken as if one had seen a ghost. Then what he does is he fails once again. He calls the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners. This motley crew that we've seen time and time again of quote-unquote wise men who were anything but 
And I'm sure they've been called many times in the past, but this is the third time that we've seen them summoned in the book of Daniel. And each time they fail, once again they fail because they are not able to interpret what has happened. Including this time, they are dumbfounded, they are clueless. It is no wonder why Nebuchadnezzar was upset with them. Belshazzar takes a slightly different tact when it comes to these wise men, quote-unquote, these conjurers. Rather than threatening them to take their lives, to take their families, to burn their homes and turn them into a rubbish heap, he incentivizes them with a reward, that of the third highest position in the kingdom. After all, Nabonidus was his co-regent father, who was first, he was second, and so he could only offer the third place. He summons these enchanters, verse 7, and says, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around his neck, and will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. They, could all, they all came in, verse 8, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So he became more terrified. It was horrifying because he had seen a supernatural occurrence right before his very eyes, and the people in the banquet hall undoubtedly could have seen it as well. thousand nobles had seen this hand appear and writing on the wall. There's some conundrum as to what happened But enter in the queen. Enter in the queen. Now, this queen wasn't his own wife. We know that because it says there in the text that his wives and his concubines were already there. So it's thought that this queen, this queen was perhaps Nebuchadnezzar's wife. The queen mother, perhaps, who was aged enough to remember Daniel. And she reminds Nebuchadnezzar that your father, Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians and that he was able to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. And once again, we see something that's very interesting, is that Daniel never accompanies the crowd of conjurers, magicians, etc. He never does. He's always apart from them, separated from them, perhaps not to associate with the pagan idolatrous ways that they had, but he comes. The king listens to his wise mother and brings Daniel before him. And he promises Daniel the same riches and honor that he promises other counselors. Now, he doesn't seem well acquainted with Daniel, which is not surprising because Nebuchadnezzar had died. Nebuchadnezzar had died some 23 years earlier. And so perhaps Daniel was semi-retired or out of the picture as much. But Daniel would have been, perhaps in his late 50s at that time, he might have been out of the picture, as I mentioned, but here he comes. He perhaps rings a bell in Belshazzar's mind as to what had happened, but Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Not only does Daniel not want any of the riches and the glory, After all, I guess who would want to be the third in the kingdom that is doomed in 24 hours? Daniel's response is interesting. His response to Belshazzar is much different than his response to Nebuchadnezzar. It seems as if Daniel and his response to the other times of Nebuchadnezzar was a bit more warm, 
a bit more favorably disposed towards Nebuchadnezzar. He, for example, in the last chapter, wished and said, Oh, king, if only this had not been for your enemies, Daniel would say. But here, without fear, he proclaims God's judgment upon Belshazzar. He is not afraid to proclaim that which was true. He was not afraid to say that which was right. He was not afraid to simply be the messenger that God has called him to be and speak the truth. Even though knowing that the king could very well become enraged, end his life, somehow get rid of him, etc. Daniel exhibits another quality of his, which is that he speaks that which God has revealed that he is not afraid to speak the truth. And God, Daniel says, God gave you, your father, power. God gave your father greatness, grandeur, and everyone feared him. But he became proud. He was deposed from his throne. He was stripped of his glory. He was sentenced to a mind that led him to eat like the cows of the field, that his hair would grow long like feathers on an eagle, that his nails would grow like talons. Until he acknowledged that the Most High God was sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes, But, verse 22, you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew this. Though you knew this. You knew this, O king. You knew the pride of your father. You knew what God did in humbling him. You knew that he was driven away for seven years until your father acknowledged God as the most sovereign. And you did not turn from your sin. In the face of knowledge, you mocked God. You mocked the God of heaven and you did not turn to the God of heaven. You knew, but in your pride and in your arrogance, you continued in your sin. This is what is written. God has numbered your days and it has come to an end. You have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Your kingdom, your authority, your life will come to an end. The king thought he could come and he could continue in sin and his pride with impunity. No, he did not have a humble and repentant heart. No, he did not acknowledge God. In fact, what he did was he mocked God and his sin caught up with him. As the scriptures say in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Galatians 6, Paul writes, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. His sin caught up with him. And today, 
In recent months, we see that play out very publicly in the news, week after week after week. Someone who has been using and abusing the position of power to abuse women, particularly has been exposed and their little kingdom has collapsed. Multiple men in Hollywood, multiple men in the news media, multiple individuals in political positions, multiple people in sports have sinned and it has caught up with them. People who have abused their position of power for personal gain, for personal pleasure, have been deposed. The judgment of God comes upon the proud. God's patience is not unlimited because judgment upon sin will come. God is opposed to the proud, but he grants grace to the humble. So the question for you and I perhaps is, is there something in your life that you have continued to do in the light of knowledge that if it were revealed, someone would say, you knew, you knew this was wrong. You knew that God is not pleased. You knew for all of these years what the scriptures have taught. You knew that God humbles those who are proud. You knew, and yet in the face of all of that and your pride and arrogance, you refuse to turn. You knew what was right. What if all of the thoughts of your mind and the actions of your heart were all on display for the world to see? What would your children think or your spouse think or your friends think? God hates our pride and pride results in sin in which we defy God by saying, oh, no one will know. Only affects me. Oh, it's just my struggle, etc. And we refuse to stop our own sin. And God will someday humble us as he's humbled Nebuchadnezzar, as he has humbled Belshazzar. Then Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. Remember in the, in the Bible, colored cloth, especially purple, was that of royalty? It was very expensive, along with scented perfume. That's what Lydia sold, a seller of purple, clothed in purple, a royal color, a gold chain, perhaps that which gave him authority, still made him the third highest ruler in the kingdom. The fact that Daniel received all of these things seemed to indicate that Belshazzar believed Daniel, that Belshazzar kept his promise. That is what happens to those who are humble. Bible repeatedly reminds us the condemnation of those who are proud and the exaltation of those who are humble. Psalm 37, 11. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Proverbs eleven two. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. The humble are willing to do whatever God wants them to do. The humble are willing to do whatever God commands them to do. As missionary Elizabeth Elliot would write, I am clay, 
as she thought about Isaiah 59, because the passage pictures us as clay in the potter's hand, she writes, quote, the word humble comes from the root word hummus, earth, or clay. Clay doesn't mold itself. The potter molds the clay, bakes the clay, uses the clay, and we, we are but clay. God's judgment comes upon the proud, but he exalts the humble. And that prophecy was fulfilled. That very night, verse 30, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. You see, Babylon was a very proud city. They were a very proud city. A number of years before this, Cyrus the Persian had defeated his, or a number of days before this, Cyrus the Persian had defeated his father, Nabonidus, and Nabonidus had not run back to Babylon. But now the Persian army, of course, was knocking at their door. Babylon was a tremendously fortified city, had walls that were some, at this time, 75 feet thick with a hundred strongly fortified gates. And there was no, no fear of not having water because they built it over the Euphrates River with one side on one side of the Euphrates River flowing through the city and the banks built up for the seasonal flooding that would occur. But the city had supplies that would last it for some 20 years, I've read. They were very proud of their city. In a thousand years, Babylon had never been stormed. And they even mocked the Persians. But God, God brought the Persians to humble the Babylonians. Extra-biblical sources, both in cuneiform and Greek, tell us what happened to the fall of Babylon on October 12, 539 B.C. Herodotus and Xenophon, who are historians, indicate that the final raid did take place during a nighttime banquet. And what had happened was that the Persians, knowing that the walls would be unpenetrable, one of the commanders of the Persian army was referred to in the book of Chronicles as Gutim, had diverted the waters of the Euphrates to an old channel. And the Euphrates River is a big river, but they diverted the waters of the channel uh, 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 of the Euphrates to an old channel that had been dug by a previous ruler, a previous queen, reducing the water level all well below the river gates. And as the waters receded, the soldiers would be able to go under the sluice gate. And the walls, the confidence of the Babylonians were not well guarded. Once inside the city, they were able to conquer it. Belshazzar's downfall, all of this was part of God's plan. Darius the Mede, who would then take over, it was a real boon for the for the people of God as a whole, because once the Persian and Medo-Persian Empire rose in power and Cyrus would come into power, Cyrus would make a decree, we find that in Ezra chapter 1, which would allow the return of the Jewish people to Palestine. But the story is the same in that God's judgment comes upon the proud. God's judgment comes upon the proud and he gives grace to the humble. 
And the question for us is, is there an area in which we are too proud, too stubborn to let go of? We're too proud to listen, too proud and too stubborn to change. Perhaps there's an area in which we secretly credit ourselves. Perhaps our identity is not even in Christ. It's our identity in our accomplishments, our achievements, and our profession. We're so happy to introduce ourselves to someone else and say, Hi, I am so-and-so. I do this or do that. Or is it that we say, Hi, I, I'm a Christian. Do you go to church? How can we be more humble? How can we be more humble? Jerry Bridges tells us, Humility towards God is akin to the fear of God. It begins with a high view of God's person. And I've shared with you before, having a high view of God, of who God is, raises your level of worship, of the worship of God, because your worship of God is only as high as the person of your understanding of whom you're worshiping. High view of God, as we see God's majesty, awesomeness, and holiness, he writes, we are humbled before him. In every occasion in the scriptures in which man was privileged to view God in his glory, he was brought low or humbled in the presence of God. Moses bowed to the ground and worshipped. Isaiah cried out, woe is me. Ezekiel fell face down. John fell at his feet as though dead. Even the four living creatures and 24 elders in heaven of Revelation fell down before the throne and glorified the Lamb. Humility in every area of life and every relationship with others begins with the right concept of God as the one who is eternal, infinite in his majesty and holiness. We are to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Approaching every relationship, every circumstance in reference to Him. When relationships with people are good and circumstances are favorable, we're to humbly receive these blessings from His gracious hand. When people are mistreating us and circumstances are difficult, we're to humbly accept them as from an infinitely wise and loving Father. Unquote. He writes, too, the promises of God toward the truly humble are almost breathtaking. The infinite, high, and lofty one who lives forever promises to dwell with them, to esteem them, to give them grace, to lift them up, and to exalt them. Humility opens the way to all other godly character traits. It is the soil in which the other traits of the fruit of the Spirit grow. God's judgment comes upon the proud, but God exalts the humble. As Isaiah writes in 66, before the Lord, he says, For my hand, God says, made all these things, all these things, came into being, declares the Lord, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. To him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. 
That is the person to whom God looks with favor. Let's pray. O God in heaven, so often when we sin, O Father, we lift up our own heart and pride, believing that our way is better than your way. When we, O Father, sin, we lift up our minds to think that we are in control. We deceive ourselves and we lie to ourselves. And Father, we pray that that might no longer be, that we might acknowledge that which is true, that you are sovereign over all creation, that you grant goodness and blessing, and we humbly receive that from your hand. But when things are difficult and trials come, may we also sit and worship you as Job would say, you, you are the one, you are the one who gives all these things. And so, Father, we accept these things from your hand and we humble ourselves before you, asking, O God, that you would bless us you are the one who gives, and you are the one who takes away. In Jesus' name, amen.